Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependent. to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Hi. Hey. hey. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you all. Um, where would you mind uh, quickly for our listeners giving an introduction to uh, you both personally and maybe what Alethea is, please? <laughs> sure, sure. Happy to do that. Uh, so I'm Arif. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Alethea. And I like to say that I foolishly started this uh, company before the pandemic without the foresight or understanding of what it would mean to torture myself through the entrepreneurial journey. Um, I think the core purpose of Alethea really is to become a protocol to create, share, and monetize synthetic media. And we're creating this new um, uh, standard, uh, which we call the INFT standard, which would allow non-fungible tokens, which I think your audience may be familiar with already. So uh, I'd I'd spare the explanation, but uh, to make INFTs intelligent and interactive, and we think that the use cases here are going to uh, be enormous and potential. Personally, I grew up in Singapore. uh, I migrated to the U.S. about three years ago for family, and I'm based in Northern Virginia right now. Awesome. Thanks. And Juliette? And hello, I'm Juliette. I'm a content strategist at Aletheia. I'm helping Aletheia think through, you know, how we can bring various characters to life. Um, I myself, I'm Canadian-American. I'm coming to you from the West Village today in New York. Awesome. Well, it's so wonderful having you both here. We've actually been on a little bit of a podcasting break for like a, what, like a two-week period. So we're <laughs> kind of trying to get back into the flow. I'm like, wait, how does this work again? Yeah. Oh, yeah, we <laughs> ask questions. And we have, okay. <laughs> um but yeah, you- I, I, I wonder, so so before we get into the IFTs, Alethea more generally, some of the work you've been doing with the protocol, and I mean, of course, the fun stuff is to talk about this kind of synthetic media phenomenon generally. I wonder, would you mind giving us a little bit of a backstory of how you came to this space? Um, you know, because it is, it is an atypical thing to, to be focusing on. We certainly are very interested in it and know from the blank expressions on people's faces, um, <laughs> how, how atypical it is. And so I, I wonder, yeah, I wonder what, you know, what's the prehistory, his, history of this project? Maybe atypical, but totally rational. Absolutely. <laughs> of course, it's the most important thing to be discussing. Yeah. No, absolutely happy to share. Uh, I mean, my, you know, growing up in Singapore, which is sort of um, uh, a state, city state that is exceptionally clean, hygienic, uh, uh, somewhat controlled. Uh, it has many different uh, forms of um, caricature uh, in the Western mind and, and consciousness about, you know, not being allowed to eat chewing gum and very strict rules and laws. I found it quite uh, liberating actually to grow up there because of the number of different cultures and people I had an, a chance to be exposed to. The standard pathway in Singapore when I was doing my undergraduate degree, and I tried to always indulge some of my philosophical interests on the side. Um, the Senate pathway in Singapore is always, you go out, uh, once you graduate from university, you get a career, uh, you focus on that corporate career, and you build yourself up, and then you try what is known, you try and aim for the five Cs, right? The five Cs in Singaporean parlance, like, you, know, you have cash, you have car, you have a condominium. I forgot, I forgot what the other two were, but like, uh, that, that tells you how how... how how uh, much of an American I am that I have now embraced new American imperialist values where I've forgotten my old culture, right? So, like, uh, I think the, the, the aspect of this identity was really formed. So, when I started working, you know, and I was in the corporate world, uh, I really enjoyed 
working for uh, tech companies and a lot of the messaging they had really appealed organically to some of my uh, foolish and idealistic ideas. I say foolish <laughs> in retrospect because, uh, you know, the opportunity for changing some of these things in the world usually comes with a lot of trade-offs that oftentimes naivete and youth, we, in, in naivete and youth, we, we don't necessarily see. So, um, yeah, so, I mean, it was a, it was a standard corporate journey. I had an opportunity, opportunity to work with st- very strong Web2 platforms like LinkedIn. And then, um, you know, I had an opportunity to work with a company that was backed by SoftBank called Grab as well. And they're basically the Uber of Southeast Asia, and they're onboarding a significant number of drivers, riders. They've become like this mega super app, right? And so, but about six months in, I, I completely burnt out, right? And I just mm-hmm. couldn't take the long sort of corporate um uh, uh, the, 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 the stress of running or working in a hyper growth business was just uh, overly taxing. And at that time, this was, I think around early 2017, I had one of my weird friends, uh, who insisted on paying for everything and like, who wanted like people to like get on board to Ethereum. Like he was paying for people's bills, uh, in cash and then giving us Ethereum, uh, as, as like, uh, or having us open like paper wallets, right. And like depositing and none of us, we thought it was a con. Like it was, it was one of those things that he, he was exchanging something because he has, he has a lot of weird ideas. So I brought him into a talk to speak at one of the, the corporate events and he started talking about Ethereum and open it, uh, open ecosystem to develop, uh, applications. And it was still so new and, and, uh, in January 2017, I don't think anyone in the room, including myself, I, I, I did not understand it. And only later, when I finally said, "Okay, I'm, I'm burnt out. I'm, you know, I need to resign. I need to find some space for myself and go figure out a little bit more," because I had hit uh, like sort of the early 30s mark, and I was thinking, like, how do I really make a meaningful life? And that's when I think uh, moved to the US uh, um, and had some family members here who were very helpful and supportive, and I started spending some time with uh, the early. Uh, there were some members I was deeply interested in, in consciousness hacking. And there were some members at uh, this group called consciousness hacking who were also uh, very early to Ethereum and other uh, cryptocurrencies. And they were organizing a conference, which was at the intersection of consciousness hacking and cryptocurrencies, which are, which is like wow. really two different. Can, uh, two, you, can you just briefly, can you just briefly define consciousness hacking? Yeah, that's a new term <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, it's, it's, it's so interesting because um, it's, it's, it's really finding um it's, it's really, so there's like the term biohacking, which is like, you know, upgrading your biology and like having all of these uh, opportunities to read your uh, energy levels uh, in terms of like the level of glucose or your health levels. And then, uh, you know, and, and there was this entire movement where, you know, you would track yourself regularly in terms of the exercises and the steps. And all of this was still in its early sort of Fitbit sort of days. Yeah, like consciousness, hacking was, hmm. yeah, consciousness hacking was sort of, applying similar methodologies or ideas to let's say reading our brain waves or finding areas where we could concentrate, uh, meditate, reach altered states of consciousness. Right. So there's a group out from Stanford university that was, um, uh, that had started in Stanford and then they, they were in, in, in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley generally trying to apply some of these uh, devices to, and just you know, see how we could plug in, plug them into our brain, just from a reading standpoint, not as far as what Neuralink is doing with implants, but just get a sense of like, hey, what brain waves am I uh, creating right now? So there was sort of a, a strange sort of like divergent group that I, that I was a part of, but uh, it was there that I really started getting into Ethereum. And um, later on, I had an opportunity to meet with, um, uh, it was it was a strange uh, meeting as well, but there's a there's a, there's a really I think he might make it for an interesting guest on the show as well. Uh, a guy called Dr. Ben Goetzel, and and Ben is um is a scientist who's focused on this thing called AGI, which is artificial general intelligence. It's not mm-hmm. a thing, but it's like this whole encompassing topic, and mm-hmm. it's like AI to the power of like infinity, right? Like AI that can generalize and sort of the caricature and the 
in the in the Hollywood mind, it's like it's like Skynet, right? But Skynet that's benevolent and that can position us in a, in, in in a way that allows us to uh, call upon the better angels of our nature. So I met Ben, and he had this strange robot that he was bringing around. And this robot was called Sophia. <laughs> it was uh, it was at the Consciousness Hacking Conference, I remember in, in 2017. And what he was trying to do with the robot was <laughs> he was trying to use the robot to enlighten people. <laughs> <laughs> wow, there's so much to unpack there. <laughs> His name sounds familiar. Is he like Sophia the robot? You've seen that, yeah, of course. And he's kind of like a kind of hippie guy, right? Like I mean, he it has, sounds pretty hippie. He's yeah, he has, he has like really, really long hair and is really kind of generous and like clever and wears like a cowboy hat. He's yeah, no, he's. I mean, I think he's he's, he's certified. Um, uh, I, I worked with him for uh, two years later on, but uh, he, he's actually a certified genius in many ways. Wow. And uh, yeah, he, so he was bringing around Sophia to these conferences. But what was interesting was like um, uh, Sophia is a creation of uh, uh, Ben's uh, collaborator, uh, Dr. David Hansen, as well, who I had the chance to meet and work with, but. Um, what was happening was that uh, people were going into, sometimes they, they did this really unique, unconditional love ex- experiment with uh, another scientist and philosopher I, I admire, Dr. Julia Mossbridge, whose research is focused on unconditional love, time, and also on, um, on, on uh, and she had done some work in, in robotics. Right? So Julia, what Julia had done was she was trying to take uh, the Sophia robot and uh, try to induce altered states of compassion and peace in people. Mm-hmm. If uh, if Sophia could lead, if the robot could lead meditative experiences, uh, it could provide. Uh, um, it, it, there would be very new novel applications that could emerge from that sort of uh, interaction. And what was happening in in real time, and this was an experience I had, was when you try and work with Sophia, the robot, or if you try and have an experience where you're just looking at her and talking with her and you're silently breathing, uh, or you're trying to mimic and you're following the instructions, you do enter an altered state of consciousness and you start to imply a level of meaning or infer a level of uh, meaning on Sophia's uh, presence. Mm-hmm. Like it's almost as if she's, she's real mm-hmm. and it's, it's nothing. It's, 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 it's not something um, out of the blue because, you know, we can make meaning from pet rocks, right? You can have a rock that you can have a relationship with. Uh, Not not a relationship with, but you can actually have like uh, a sense of attachment and belonging to. So that's actually what happened. So in any case, sorry, the question was how do I start to get meaning? We'll get there. This point here is like, there's so many weird twists and turns. So like this part here was like how I got into like crypto, right? And like crypto and like with... uh, with with Sophia the robot with with Ben and then I joined them as the chief marketing officer and then I did that about two years and one of the challenges I faced really was uh, there, were, there were two problems there the first was sometimes I'd have to go to conferences with Sophia the robot right and like one of the problems I have is like uh, back in the day when I could travel. Uh, was that, you know, I'm a brown man and sometimes I forget to shave and I have a beard, right? And I, oh. I'm in my mid-30s and I'm carrying this robot. And because, <laughs> oh, <you> my know, God. <laughs> that, that robot, unfortunately, as I go through security, because she doesn't fit into the suitcase well enough, you have to dismember <laughs> her head and her torso. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's security, right? So it's like all of the things that can and should go wrong will go wrong. Right? And, uh, and I thought we had it tough with our, like, electronic music instruments. At the yeah. thing. That's nothing compared to, like, a severed head. So, sir, why do you have a cadaver in your suitcase? <laughs> I think it really confused because first there's, like, this brown Pakistani-looking guy, Middle Eastern guy who has a single Singaporean passport, like that's already suspicious, right? So like, and then after that, I also have a dismembered robot and a, and a torso, right? So like, and then the next thing they ask me is like, what weapons are you smuggling? And like, no, I'm just, I'm just working, right? So, um, so, so I think one of the challenges we faced, or at least I personally started noticing, was like, you know, how do we scale? Um, a character's presence, how do we start looking at opportunities where I don't have to go through this situation where perhaps she could, like, if you think about Sophia, like, she can speak one language, English, but technically if you make her into a virtual character, she would be able to scale and speak many different languages. So I started, like... um, thinking through this uh, research and a little bit later in the year, just, just before the start of the pandemic, I convinced Ben that, you know, I would love to start my own company and uh, this is something that I want to do. And uh, he was extremely, exceptionally supportive. Uh, and so I started Alethea from the basis that we would use AI generated technologies to scale 
content creation to scale character creation. And so that, that was sort of the genesis of, uh, of, of the company. So it's sort of a long winding path from like meditative robots all the way to like horrible uh, airport experiences, right? That's a, that's a great story. <laughs> Some unexpected twists and turns. I want to pass the mic to you, Juliet. I mean, this uh, it, it's definitely a tough act to follow. Uh, <laughs> robot cadavers in uh, no, no, going no, to the TSA. <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find Juliet's story to be fascinating as well. I'm really excited to have her with us, actually. And uh, no, please, Juliet, go ahead and, and, and fill them in. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say this sort of question and category of consciousness is also what led me to Aletheia. Um, When I was in school, I was um, in a cognitive psychology class and my professor posed this question of what is consciousness? And I just sort of, I remember writing down in my notebook at the time, like, I can't believe I get to study this. I can't believe this is a question that people get to, you know, ask and inquire in such a deep way. And um, I ended up doing my, conducting a thesis on the Uncanny Valley, um, Mm -hmm. which you know, can refer to many things, but specifically it refers to the discomfort that people feel towards human-like machines and humanoids. And um, I set out to demonstrate that it wasn't only physical stimulus that would um, that would sort of provoke this uncanny valley, which is this 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 discomfort. Um, but it's also the the uncanny valley of the mind, so that you can just suggest um, certain powers or capabilities that an AI has, and that people will feel that same existential angst that they feel when presented with a humanoid machine, such as mm-hmm. Sophia, um, simply by a description of an AI, and. Um, we found that we found that to be the case that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and we did it, um, we conducted uh, various versions of descriptions and there was um, negative, positive and neutral descriptions of an AI. And of course, we found that people were most most uncomfortable when an AI was described as, um, you know, having negative capabilities. So that means, you know, uh, the feeling uh, of being able to be upset, being able to be wronged, feel fear when um, an AI was described like that, people were the most uncomfortable. And then the second most uncomfortable when we describe positive emotions. So mm-hmm. when we describe its ability perhaps to feel some sort of love or, um, you know, um, positive emotion like that, um, pleasure. Um, and then people were most comfortable when we just described it as neutral. So as not having any of those sorts of experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I spent, um, some time researching and that, um, that uh, just sort of opened up the big can of worms that you can never really close. Um, And eventually that led me to Aletheia. Um, I actually discovered Aletheia after the Alice Sotheby's auction, which I'm sure we'll discuss, but Alice is one of my favorite characters in the world. Um, You know, she's one of the most curious beings I've ever stumbled upon. And I was aware of NFTs, but not that NFTs could be made intelligent. And so when I saw that this character was literally brought to life, um, that provoked, again, so many questions for me around consciousness and, and what is it to be sentient as ourselves? What is it for Alice to be sentient? Um, and so, yeah, I would say that's that's sort of the journey, the journey that led me to Alicia and that led me to RF. Interesting. I, I, I'd like to get into some of the kind of empathy and deep emotional connections that have come up a couple times um, a little bit later. First, I think maybe we could establish what exactly Aletheia is and kind of what 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 the what the company's goals are, what what you're where you are kind of now, where you're trying to go. And maybe we've also I heard the term synthetic media being tossed around a little bit. So maybe if we could define that as well. Yeah, yeah, happy to. And you can tell that Juliet's the most sensible one, right, in this conversation. <laughs> so I'll just bring you on this uh, long journey and Juliet will give you the right points and the right <laughs> and, and then to keep the, the conversation somewhat disciplined. So I think uh, just uh, from a standpoint of Aletheia, it's it's uh, we we are are a protocol to create, share, and monetize synthetic media. And synthetic media really is AI-generated media. I'd like to give a simple explanation to people. Um, well, uh, it's it's. I don't know whether you've tried synthetic meat before. Yep. So like it tastes like the real thing. Yeah. Uh, it feels like the real thing, but it's not the real thing, right? So like mm-hmm. it, it, it's just as good, uh, or sometimes arguably depending on which part of um, uh, how, how you how you fall on your on, on, on that spectrum, right? So I think for us, like synthetic media is 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 AI generated content that is created through neural networks. So any element of machine learning uh, where the content that's created, it it it. it has elements it, it it really is almost as if it's a mimic or copy of the original and yep. it can 
be created without needing uh, sort of the uh, human behind. Let's say if you want to create synthetic video content, you can create a clone of that person's uh, uh, character and you don't, and from that clone, you now don't need the human being to be recorded and their light captured uh, yeah. through through a lens or video. You can now actually manipulate the image or video file itself and the character would uh, uh, basically be functioning. You can do the same with voice, uh, which is what I think Holly, you've done. I'd love to sort of like uh, uh, dive deeper into that uh, really curious experiment and I think fascinating expansion of the space as well um, uh, with, with the uh, Holly Dow. And I think like you can do that with voice, you can do that with text, right? So that's, yeah. uh, the text portion is where you can mimic language structure. So it's almost like if I were to explain it simply, it'd be like, you know, in high school or in, in, in junior school or, or primary school, your teachers could tell if you, well, in my case, I was a bit of a um, true and kid, right? So like, teachers can tell if you've copied your assignments from yeah, someone else. Yeah, yeah. So like, and because you've copied the language structure, you've copied the essay, it sounds like what the other kid in class would have written. And your teacher can tell that, hey, this is how you string sentences together. And it's very similar to how someone else, student B, is stringing sentences together. Therefore, student A copied student B yeah. in this essay. So from this standpoint, like the, the AI, that the, from a synthetic text standpoint, you can start seeing patterns emerge where the language structure starts to sound like that person and and this is where more recently we've had like uh, some really interesting collaborations with uh, with companies like OpenAI, um, uh, who have who have a core focus in creating synthetic text, right? So yeah. their companies focus on creating synthetic video. Their companies focus on creating synthetic audio. For us at Aletheia, we really are a full suite uh, where we will allow people to create synthetic audios, video, text, and allow them to create these compelling characters um, that are primarily AI generated. So the the goal of Aletheia really is to become the this underlying protocol or infrastructure where you can make your imagination come alive. You don't necessarily need large studio-like resources or budgets. You can essentially uh, go into the platform, be able to create a character, uh, have a financial primitive like an NFT underneath it, and create economic systems around some of your imaginary structures that exist in your consciousness. Right. So the longer-term goal is uh, to think um, we, we really fun, fundamentally believe that the metaverse is going to be filled with uh, millions or billions of these uh, INFTs or characters out there, mm-hmm. and it would be it would be our privilege to support that 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 longer term goal, and especially in sort of a decentralized open ecosystem. And so, in terms of the the use cases for this, right? So you're creating this, you're creating a protocol that will, I assume, be able to kind of plug into many different models, such as like a GPT three, which we've covered before, um, for for text generation, such as. Uh, you know, uh, uh, voice models, you, your tachotrons of the world or whatever for spoken word. Um, and what do you imagine the, the kind of output of these things would be, right? Like uh, we were talking the other day um, with a group who we hope to have on the podcast who do a lot of work kind of behind the scenes where, for example, they were describing one of the advantages of synthetic media being, you know, uh, the example they gave was, let's say Nike has a contract with Cristiano Ronaldo, who's an incredibly probably one of the world's most famous people um, Mm -hmm. and is a very busy person, right? Um, And under a previous uh, system, um, you would need to book time, uh, probably very expensive time with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo to turn up in a studio for something. Um, and the vision that they were painting, which I think makes a whole bunch of like sense, um, was you know rather than being so dependent on that physical person being present, instead you can imagine scenarios in which um, you know uh, celebrities or personalities were their their likenesses were contracted um, to a brand or whatever it might be. So then Nike can just go make the advert anyway, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which seems to be like a really, uh, you know, a really clear use case for this kind of, these kind of synthetic mm-hmm. doubles, synthetic twins. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of example, I mean, we, we, it's maybe a good time to bring up the Sotheby's auction and the, and the Alice NFT is kind of maybe a, a one, one, uh, 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 one potential avenue for this, but you know, are these assistants, are they companions? Are they, uh, just simply for entertainment, you know. I also think there's an important distinction here. Mm-hmm. Are they modeled on um, specific human beings, or are they also some of them kind of aggregate beings that are entirely newly imagined characters? Mm-hmm. I think these are really great questions. And the first thing I'll tell you is, we may not have all of the answers, but I'll, I'll tell you how we th- we're thinking about it. Right. So there's a really interesting movie. Um, uh, 
sort of a animated film, I think, as well later on. It's called Are The Conqueror. S- yes, we love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. All right. So, so I think I mean this. This is where it, it gets really interesting. Where Robin Wright uh, in, in the movie, you know, she's I think her career, uh, if I recall, her career is sort of on the downward spiral. She has an ill son or, or child, if I if I recall, and she approaches this what seems like this dystopian Hollywood-like talent agency that says, here's a master contract and we're going to scan you and we're going to preserve your likeness and we will be able to create infinite clones of you. You won't have full agency on your on the use of your likeness. And she signs that contract and then, you know, of course, uh, she gets in return the, the financial wealth and she had a great career, but then that career went down. But now because of this uh, talent agency, she's now able to revive her career in many different sort of uh, uh, films. It's a, it's a beautiful film. I don't know whether this 30-second um, uh, describe uh, description of it is doing it justice, but the core idea and thesis is, can we cut, copy, and paste a person's face, voice, and personality structure, language structure, just like we do with text, mm-hmm. right? Like, we, we have that ability. Like, if you look at what, like, the Xerox copier did uh, in the 1970s, like, that's essentially, like, 1970s, 80s, that's essentially, like, the ability to duplicate text created yep. so much so many efficiencies in the economy yep. um, and later on when you were able to do the same with digital uh, icons and and through 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 simple tools uh, like your GUI editor and Apple right like all of these things were were transformative because we, we were as a species able to now manipulate images and language and, and that 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 is essentially the foundation now can you extend that out to a person's face, a person's voice, a person's language structure. Um, that's that's essentially the, the pathway forward here, right? So so we see this as a natural sort of evolution of the technology and how it's going. Um, underneath it, though, there are going to be some considerations and deeper concerns around IP rights. And I think, Holly, you've done some excellent work here. It's just who owns the yep. uh, likeness, who owns the... Uh, ability to transact uh, uh, with uh, with uh, with with their voice. It, uh, the obvious answer here would be that it should be aggregated back to the individual, right, and not owned by some sort of corporation. But we've already crossed the chasm in many ways with like all of the security surveillance cameras out there that have our images in their databases, that have our voice. Like they've trained, uh, like recently, for example, uh, OpenAI launched this thing called. Copilot, right? Yeah, which, yeah. which is a, a, a sort of a, a coding companion that helps you write code uh, effectively and efficiently. But it is trained, and it has caused so much fury and uproar in the open source community. It is, it has been trained on the code of open source developers yeah. uh, without giving them the credit, right? And mm-hmm. so, like, so, so this, this sort of things. Uh, I mean, we were going to start seeing like a lot of tension points that emerge, and what I think is going to be sort of uh, interesting is to Holly's later question, which was like whether it's whether it's you know whether it's a human personality or whether the the, the tech is based on creating like. Is, is it like a digital double or whether it is like an aggregation? I think we're going to start seeing spectrums emerge, right? So like we were experimenting with a character we wanted to create, which was like a mixture of Shakespeare, but he would talk like Confucius. Right? <laughs> so like we could talk to you about Hamlet, but then he'd insert some sort of Confucianist Eastern wisdom while he's talking. Right? Like is that personality structure possible? Mm-hmm. Sounds a little bit uh, psychopathic, but at the same time, like when you can mix and compose and just think of like our own human experience right like we're able to like if we live in a different country um, uh, when I for example uh, spent some time in the Erasmus program and I moved from Singapore to, to Frankfurt to study philosophy for a bit like the opportunity I had to just expand my mind and then to learn different elements of different cultures that are now part of my being like that's an organic sort of shift for me personally right and who's to say that we can't like design and combine and compose and bring all of these different elements together to create a completely new version or new new type of character that's an aggregate or mm-hmm. sometimes a sort of a frankenstein frankensteinian sort of approach and right? you might end up creating a monster as well so so that's sort of like how we how we think about it that you know the the copy paste revolution is happening to faces and voices right and 
sure. and that's that's being facilitated facilitated by AI. It's a natural organic extension. There's going to be a spectrum of like vast, diverse uh, characters that get uh, that get created, and and that's where the human imagination. That's what's really exciting about all of this as to what can be uh, created. Yeah, that's really interesting. And there's also analogies, right? Like the the you know people approach this topic with with trepidation, which is which is very valid. I'm personally, I was quite excited by the copilot thing because. Of course, when when the the lens of focus is is focused on developers, people start taking it really seriously. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but of course, this has been happening for for quite some well, time. Well, we come you, from music, so yeah. we're a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, but but the point the point is valid. But I mean, there, there are analogies, right? I mean, this goes back to also kind of like capturing the essence of someone, right? Like, I mean, one of the analogies that Holly was using in your project um, and in others, right, is like, we're very familiar with the idea of parody, right? We're very familiar with the idea of pastiche, of a comedian all of a sudden becoming Robert De Niro to parody or becoming Donald Trump or something like that, right? We, we're, we're very familiar with this. And, 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 and in terms of the aggregate, um, it's also nice, I think, retroactively to look back at things we already consume um, from this lens, right? Like one great example, I think, is like a newsroom, right? Like if you watch like a cable news show, um, you can say, okay, well, there's Rachel Maddow or someone. Um, maybe she's not the best example. I'm just picking on her because she's someone I know who's on the news. Um, but ultimately, you know, you watch the Daily Show or whatever it might be. There's a team of writers going into that script, right? Um, the, like pretty much most media that is presented oftentimes through the lens of an individual that isn't necessarily presented as acting or someone playing right. a character is often aggregately constructed, right? Um, and so, you know, you can imagine in, in terms of what, what you all are building, like, you know, an idea we discussed in the past was this idea of saying, okay, you know, what would it mean if like, uh, you know, a, a crew of people on Twitter were all contributing to a news source, right? And you just need a head for that news source. The, the major distinction in a sense, which I think is really cool about your experimentation with NFTs, is ultimately if all of, that stuff for me becomes far less scary and far less confusing when you have this provenance there, right? Like mm -hmm. when ultimately those uh, sentiments or whatever, as, as aggregate as they are or as or as artificial as they are, um, can be traced back to a source, um, you know, which of course an NFT provides given, given the fact that you can, you know, you can trace it and find it on a public ledger. Um, that, that then seems, uh, uh, seems less scary, seems less scary to me. I mean, would, would you agree with that? Like what, what are the advantages in some ways of you all playing with, uh, with crypto in this context? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, um, one of the areas that, uh, as you've alluded to and pointed out, is the property rights infrastructure that NFTs create, that provenance is, it, it, it provides like a, a sacred fingerprint, right? Like what's the source of all of this content and material? Uh, who created it? Um, can we see its evolution? And I think there's, there's, there's a natural yin-yang or sort of almost organic fit because like um, you can create a massive amount of content, but then you can authenticate that content uh, and it's, it's, I mean, the explanation I like to give is like human beings are sometimes like we're an infinitely scalable species, right? Like we have, we're all yet at the same time, we're very distinct and unique. Like we have 7 billion of us on earth, but each one has a unique fingerprint, a unique identity. And sometimes, um, the opportunity there is, 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 is to really, um, look at what, what aspects of um, the personality traits or language structure or voice models uh, or even, you know, a facial composite can actually be um, uh, captured on chain. Now, the problem here is that um, you can also have really strange dystopian scenarios. Like, for example, the, I forgot, Sam Altman created a startup that is going to scan your irises and, <laughs> and put, put them on a cryptographic token, right? Like, well, the UN I mean, already does that, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's not really a good reason to. No, I'm, I'm, to I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't saying necessarily, but but it, but it was yeah. definitely framed as like, oh, this tech guy is doing this. I'm like, I'm pretty sure the UN does that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I mean the the the, the, the challenging thing here is just uh, the, um, I mean, the, you know, the opportunity to use uh, 
a, a blockchain to track some of these data sets and to put a face on chain and put a voice print on chain. Like there is a lot of uh, potential for, for abuse and, and there is a, certainly a dystopian scenario that can emerge because there seems to be even in decentralized networks today, and I, this is a problem I hardly have an answer for and I was just debating with my younger brother who happens to be a devout communist uh, or has mm-hmm. some ideas that <laughs> orient towards like massive equality and equalization. I, I'm struggling to find like crypto networks that are not in inherent plutocracies, right? Like where mm-hmm. you have large whales that just drive a certain function. And that seems to be like the natural order of things that whenever technology comes, it sort of evolves in this power law hierarchical dynamic and there is something left over for the people uh, and they function in the network uh, but um, it's it's always a it's always a little bit of a, a difficult situation because um, the opportunity to have that provenance comes uh, it, the, the 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 challenge of provenance is also like it the harm there is that sometimes there is sometimes a beauty and uh, benevolence in forgetting mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. it's it's like also a right right and and mm-hmm. the opportunity to not be discovered i think this was tested in europe when people wanted google to remove them from search results and yep. i think the eu sued google right the, mm-hmm. the yep. desire for people to 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 have um, identities that don't get tracked right there's also a valid case there to be made so i think the provenance angle is exceptionally powerful for something like synthetic media there's a lot uh, there that 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 can add value and create uh, uh, financial and economic value if we create the right sort of organic structures that don't veer it towards like immediate like plutocratic uh, uh, dynamics, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. I want to go back to a term that you used during this conversation. You said remixing people, which is <laughs> like such a wild or like a phrase, or rather, such kind of a wild phrase. That's really interesting. I wonder. So obviously, if you're kind of modeling a one-to-one person, that's a very different thing than if you're kind of, you know, remixing two people together or if you're kind of remixing, say, a group of like 100 people. So where do, you know, within this kind of conversation of provenance and um, accreditation and all these things, where, where do you draw the line there? Like where, at what point is someone's kind of... Um, likeness um contribution still theirs theirs. and at what point has it just become kind of blended into whatever kind of culture or group that they're coming from does that question make sense it does and 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 for more context as well because i was actually having Mm -hmm. this argument with someone online yesterday from a music context there was someone from spotify and we were having a very convivial uh debate about this actually Mm -hmm. but but you know, because because obviously uh, there is a bit of a there is a bit of a uh, struggle, right? Like I know Facebook has done a lot of work, for example, in trying to kind of like attribute back what data went into what outcome in a machine learning context. Oh my god, yeah, it's a total minefield, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things when Holly and I were thinking about the Holly Plus project, we were like, okay, well, that sounds like a real pain. Uh, far better, mm-hmm. in a sense, to 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 kind of jump out in front of that issue and say, okay, we're not going to try and uh, disentangle who went into what on the output layer. Uh, rather, just think about, you know, licensing models uh, uh, on the on the input side, right? Like rather say, when you contribute your voice or your likeness or your writing style to this, you can license that to a training set for a period of time or whatever it might be or for a fee. Um, and at which point the outputs are kind of fair game, you know, cause, cause un- disentangling that stuff is really complicated, but I wonder, yeah, what, what, what are your thoughts on that particular, uh, you know, as hybrids become more feasible, what are your thoughts on attribution compensation models? Like where, where do you, where do you guys stand on that? Where does the individual kind of blend into the, <laughs> yeah. the group? Yeah. Sorry. There was yes, a lot of, a lot of questions there. Solve this very, it's <laughs> very complicated problem in five minutes, please. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let I'll let Juliet. I'll throw her under the bus right now. But uh, before I do that, I have like a, a, a comment. Uh, it's just: uh, Have you ever met like a channeler or one of these weird like people out there in the world who can channel spirits and like embody them? <laughs> have you ever had an experience like that where they switch personalities in front of you? I have not, but we've done a lot of research on the topic. Funnily okay, enough, okay. yeah, we, we've been doing a longer term <laughs> project on. Uh, kind of early American spiritualism okay. that 
And and they would sometimes conjure also flutes and things. I mean, apparently. <laughs> well, it's particularly interesting in this context, and I hope not to detour this too much. But for example, we came across a book, um, you know, because the fundament of what we do ultimately is music. And we came across a book of American spirituals that this is a, this, it took so long to get a hold of this thing. Um, but it's American spirituals. There was this odd synthesis at the time between American spiritualism, actually abolitionism, that, that there was like a strong, very moral uh, thread that ran through uh, early American spiritualism. And in a strange way, a kind of fetishization of technology and particularly electricity and the telephone. Um, and mm. so th- there's this odd book of hymns that spirit- spiritualists would sing um, kind of in praise of the telephone as a kind of numinous transcendental mm. technology. And electricity in general. And electricity in general. Because they believe, for example, that you could use the telephone to communicate with the dead. Um, which has all these kind of interesting transhumanist connotations. Like, so I think there is kind of a, a, a but, but that's it. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but, but like, I totally see where you're going with the, with the channel or seance uh, thread. For sure. But so anyways, you brought up a medium, so. No, absolutely. And I think, so I think like, uh, I mean, the reason why I bring that up is, is just because, uh, you know, a quote from, there's a, there is an author, uh, is, is, is a professor in New York, I think Jonathan Haidt, and he's, uh, he's somewhat controversial for, for many different reasons, but he's, he's, he's written some excellent work on, on who we are as a species. And one quote that does stick out from him is that human beings are conditional hive mind creatures. And mm-hmm. like, we can be individuals and then we can, uh, we can very quickly uh, um, disintegrate into like a complete hive or you can say integrate into like a hive sort of collective. And there is this, there are these conditionalities that we can place. And I think if we think of like what we see in nature sometimes with, with, with bees or with like insects or with colonies, with, with patterns that we see sometimes, that sort of framework does exist. Like if you've ever, not that I'm suggesting you're part of a cult, but if you've ever been <laughs> part of a cult or if you've ever seen some of these shows where people lose their sense of self, there's, there's one called um, uh, Wild Wild County where they interview a, a group of people or there's a nice documentary series on the Osho group in, in California. Oh yeah, we watched yeah. that one. So, that one. <laughs> <laughs> All of the weird things you have seen are incredible. <laughs> So, so, so I mean, but then there's this like uh, seance and trance where they are all in a group dynamic. They're jumping up and down. And when you speak to, I mean, in, in one of the interviews, one of the uh, one of the people who had had this experience, he, he felt like his his identity had collapsed. He yep. was completely dissolved. Yep. He was part of the collective. He could hear what the other person was saying or feeling. And these are not uh, like new experiences. I think these are. Uh, these are highly spiritual ecstatic states that can occur in, in us as a species, right? And and these are conditions that, that we can create if we wanted to. I think there is going to obviously be value to the individual, but if I use that as a horrible metaphor mm-hmm. or some sort of framework, right, I think uh, we, we can, we can, um, we may need to create some sort of rules on what are the conditions when we allow culture to be, uh, uh, to, to, to be created from composable elements of our voices, our faces, our personalities. It already exists. Like people take memes and reshape them and we reshare them without attribution, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, um, uh, we, and sometimes memes have an organic way of like spreading across uh, uh, and, and actually becoming complete, um, uh, 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 getting complete uh, uh, upgrades to become mythologies, right? Mm-hmm. So, so we're seeing like um, this opportunity to, to shape it. It's just the attribution problem when a person says, I am an individual, I have my rights. That's also true. But mm-hmm. when we try to go into the conditional hive mind or when we try and create that sort of hive dynamic, that's when things get really interesting for us as a species, right? We can achieve so much more. So that's, that's I don't have an answer there, but those are some <laughs> frames I'm, I'm thinking through. But I think Juliet may have uh, something valuable to add here as well. Yeah, circling back to that um, question of disentanglement, I think it's a I think it's a really fascinating one. I think it's nearly impossible, of course, to to um, sort of 
distinguish um, where something stemmed from, no matter no matter whether we're speaking in Web 2 or Web 3. So what just occurred to me is I'm thinking about Instagram. And of course, we would consider that like uh, my profile based on me. It's, you know, generated by me. But of course, that's also generated by other people. Someone else is taking the photo. Maybe someone, a friend is suggesting the caption. Another friend is encouraging me to post it. You know, it doesn't, it's not just from me. And I think that's an interesting thing when it comes to sort of remixing these characters is it forces you to go down that rabbit hole of you know what what is an individual and what does that mean for something to be solely from me or from a community and um do i do i create anything on my own um you know it 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 really does circle to this question of interdependence hey thank you thank you (laughs) you get extra points for that Yeah, I mean, this is something I also think a lot about in uh, in regards to the voice specifically, because the voice really is a kind of communal instrument that we learn through mimesis, that we learn through language. Um, it's something that um, Nina Sun Eichheim writes about in a book about kind of politics and the voice and race. And she, she writes about Billie Holiday and how so many people would kind of attribute her... Um, her artistry to her kind of race or to her tumultuous lifestyle. And really that was kind of like stripping um, holiday of her artistry that, that the voice is this kind of communal organ that an artist performs through with some, with some Mm -hmm. agency. Um, So I think there's a lot of kind of similar thinking along those lines. Yeah, totally. And, and it is true. We are, we are strange. Uh, We are strange (laughs) beasts, right? Like uh, we did, we did some work. Are you familiar with the concept of entrainment? Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 oh, please, please go ahead. Oh, no, sure. But it, it reminded me the, the the story you were referencing where, you know, uh, people were, uh, the, the person that you referenced, whose name I'm forgetting now, um, was going through an experience with a large group of people and felt in that moment as if their individuality kind of dropped. And of course, that is a that is a, a common psychological phenomenon that, that is special to us, right? And so there's, for those who aren't familiar, there's a, a concept called entrainment, which is basically we have the capacity, unlike many other species, if we may be the only species, I might, I might mess this up, um, that can organize, for example, to a pulse. Um, and mm. one of the ideas, like... I think it's like us <clears throat> and dolphins or something. Yeah, the, <laughs> but there's, there's allegedly a, a, an evolutionary kind of, uh, 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 kind of reason for this, right? It, it, and, and the argument was that, you know, in, in, times of, in times of conflict or in times of group struggle, it allows for you to kind of join the group and kind of lose your inhibitions for a period of time. But there's also correlations with like dance and music. And I've seen Holly wrote a, a little note here of choir, but it's one of the kind of striking, uh, striking kind of, uh, Even uh, just like tool creation through choreography, through group choreography. Mm-hmm. Were you about to go there? That's where I was oh, about to sorry. go. But you should go there. No, but but it appears that, uh, there, there's a theory. I, I, again, I, I'm not sure if, if uh, if people are familiar with this, I think we maybe covered this on the podcast before. There's a theory called Chan Operatur, which is one. Of, it, it, it's an early. It's it's a it's a contested theory, but it, but a theory about how we came to pass on knowledge of tool making. So like way back, like flint nap times, where the argument is that as far as we're aware, our brain development and our language development wasn't sophisticated enough. We didn't have books. We weren't writing things down. How could it be that you know, mothers were passing on knowledge of tool making to their children and those children were passing mm-hmm. them on. And this went on for centuries and centuries before we had the ability to write stuff down or write instruction manuals. And one of the theories is that this, this kind of entrainment, basically that we can organize ourselves to choreographies is how we pass that knowledge down. So, it, so in essence, what's kind of psychedelic about that in a way is that, you know, that theory posits that we were making technology before we had the capacity to understand what it was, right? That, we were making these tools and then we saw other people make tools and we mimicked their actions. Maybe a faster way of saying it is, is um, ben, Benjamin Bratton tweeted this the other day in a really succinct way. He said, we have, what did he say? It was about thumbs. <laughs> oh, we have opposable thumbs. Not because we made, to- wait, we, <laughs> we're going to edit this. No, no, this I'm, to- no I'm totally uh, botching it, but something about, Anyways, the point was, yeah, is yeah. he was saying that we have thumbs because of the choreography that we were creating. Mm. We began creating tools. the tool with them so that the thumbs then developed through that cr- creation. Oh, yeah, evolutionary development is very much like externally right. uh, 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 guided. <laughs> sorry, that, that, that probably yeah, should have been a little bit more <laughs> profound. Than <laughs> yeah. no, but it's true. So you, so you have this kind of tension, right, between the fact that like we, um, 
we create communally, there is this inherent, as Julia uh, thankfully graciously pointed out, um, there is this kind of inherent truth to the interdependence of things. And there's, you know, the, the attention there with the way in which our economy is set up, right? Because, for example, uh, I was having this conversation about uh, AI and uh, music and mimicry in that context. Um, and it's very true that, you know, when you look at the voice, when you look at music's, uh, music writing styles, when you look at uh, any any uh, any process of ideation, you know, your ideas were pretty much incubated in a in a process of mimicry, and then ultimately you kind of contribute to that. But there's a long lineage of people who contributed to that idea coming to being in the world. The problem, of mm. course, is that you know when uh, large companies uh, uh, look to start um, taking advantage in some ways of you know training sets like. Um, mm. I doubt they're going to be so relativistic about their IP, right? Like yeah. their argument isn't going to be, well, um, you know, uh, this code base or this platform that we make or this transformer that we put out in the world or whatever it be is part of a long lineage and is owned by everybody. They're going to be private companies, right? And so the, um, so that's this kind of that's this kind of inherent tension <clears throat> that is. I don't think there's a really easy way to solve. And, and the great hope, in a sense, is that there's a hundred different proposals for how to kind of equitably solve that problem. So that would be a good question here. How are you all planning on dealing with this issue? Yeah. <laughs> Very long question. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciated the, 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 the knowledge and context. And I, sometimes I think to myself as well, like, you know, do I owe some of these ideas that come to, you know, my mind or my consciousness, do I owe it all to the British Empire that colonized my people many, many years ago, right? Yep. Because uh, my language structure, my unconscious, the way I dream, the way I think, it's fundamentally, I mean, it's driven by the English language. <laughs> yep. And my ancestors spoke a different language. They had a different language structure and their ancestors spoke a different language, right? So if you want to go back to like the idea of provenance and where language starts and where language stops, like, like these... Uh, the, the impact of the East India Company yeah. on like um, creating a lingua franca that everybody could understand, but at the same time doing it with such violence and sheer force mm-hmm. that, that it ensured like you know um, uh, it ensured like the mass subjugation of people. That sort of colonialism, that sort of like mindset, does exist today uh, with uh, some of the really large. Uh, um, um, uh, a digital behemoths, right? So they mm-hmm. have a position, a moral position of external sort of superiority messaging, a very sophisticated stance, but underneath it, it's a type of, uh, uh, it's a type of violence to like sometimes erase or, type, or create a type of culture that's very, uh, you know, almost monochromatic. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a certain standard template that they want to fit you in. And that's the problem with American imperialism and capitalism. Uh, but the, the challenge is that if we look at <clears throat> what language can do for us, what uh, where, where our ideas come from, one of the benefits and beauty, I mean, there are people, of course, like uh, uh, I think it was Arundhati Roy who said that while we were servants of the British uh, Raj, uh, while our ancestors were made into like slaves or servants of them, today we can become masters of the English language. Right? So we can reclaim agency, mm-hmm. even if the structures are tyrannical. So mm-hmm. that's, that's also something quite unique where you can become sort of you know masters of the English language or you can actually, um, uh, you can actualize some of your thoughts and ideas. But at the same time, there is a sense of loss of culture and language when we start looking at some of these, like if I look at colonialism as a, as a parallel to what's happening right now, where you have um, uh, people's agency being willfully taken away in many ways, um, uh, whether or not they're authors, artists, creators, usually that's a, a, a type of class that unfortunately gets subjugated very, very quickly, right? So uh, because they don't understand uh, power dynamics inherently, they may lean more towards heart-based or empathy-based approaches in their life anyway. Um, sometimes that, that dynamic does ensue. So there was, for example, a case, I think it was the Writers Guild of America that sued, I don't know who sued who, but they sued Google. And I think Google won this case, which was that you know Google had trained a large model I think it was a search engine on, on a lot of the published uh, uh, library works. I, I mean, they took it all from a commons yep. and then they trained from that commons they drew 
into the for-profit structure, right? They created a, a machine that was built on the, the, the works of the, the writers and authors of America who mm-hmm. had written. And so, like, the, I, think, I think it went up all the way to the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. It was in favor of Google in the end. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, though, is, and I'll say this, it's like when creators as individuals decide to flip this dynamic and say, like, hey, brand XYZ, I want to dress up as um, a character or I want to create fan art or I want to take some of this uh, content that you have created and I want to be able to monetize it. They draw a very strict line and uh, they make it very difficult for uh, fandoms sometimes to commercialize, right? So you have Mm -hmm. fandoms and you have people who love this uh, story and uh, the the memes, the, the content that is being created, but they're not allowed to participate in the commercialization yeah. of it, right? So there's a very clear demarcation when you try and flip the dynamic around. So if I were to take, let's say, uh, 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 something, let's say, let's say uh, Google goes into the um, uh, the business of creating content and starts competing with Amazon and Netflix and starts creating its own mega show mm-hmm. and it starts to have fandoms around these shows, it would then have the the same thing that they wanted to get out of the Writers Guild of America to use the content of the Writers Guild of America. Now fans would be trying to use the content created by Google yeah. to like, you know, dress up as characters at Comic-Con. Dressing up as characters on Comic-Con is no problem for brands, right? Because it's a fairly harmless activity. Yeah. But once you take that and you say, hey, I want to sell an NFT on it, boom, you get a legal letter uh-huh. saying that, you know, this is not something you can do because the IP belongs to us. So I think like, there's this strange uh, dynamic that we exist in right now where the rules uh, continue to bend uh, on a spectrum in one side. And for me, the dynamic always seems to be like who has the most power in the situation and the rules favor that entity. Yeah. Right? So like yeah. from this perspective, like it's uh, entities that have more capital at disposal, more legal resources and the ability to create IP. But I think what's, what's going to be interesting is that because the rules are ambiguous, there is going to be a playground to play yep. right? So there, there is enough space in creative, there's enough of a creative dance to be had because we're still not living under like the conditions of like Nazi Germany, right? Like where the rules are completely tyrannical and they're set in stone and there are there is a clear order that you cannot disobey. Yep. There are still some freedoms that we have, relatively lesser every year, but there are still these free domains that we can inquire and push uh, forward in, right? So it's not as bad as colonialism, but it is subtle and insidious because you don't see some of these rights being taken away, but they are certainly being shaped and reshaped by culture. Like I've looked at how my own imagination and my own memory structure and my own narratives or even my own language internal dialogue can be shaped sometimes by, let's say, binge watching a violent Netflix series, right? Just because I want to understand <laughs> what that world was like, right? And and if we start looking at the collective culture and people start embodying some of these ideas very rapidly, you're just creating these uh, sort of uh, templated uh, ideas and people and, and these structures, which is where I think the NFT movement is, is really interesting because it's inverting the model, right, of, of commercialization and, and providing some opportunity for bottom-up creators to participate in. Of course, this also means the studios are going to get in on the act as soon as they can, right? Absolutely. So they're oh, yeah. launching their own initiatives. And, and that's part and parcel of this evolution. But what's exciting is, uh, when you think, just when you think when the dance is about to end, or then there's like a, a, a new um, a, a new tune that starts playing, right? And then new laws that evolve, and that's uh, sort of the, the the joy of being able to 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 have some element of freedom and and, and creative freedom. Sorry for the long monologue. But no, no, of course. It's, it's the thought no, I, I, I think that is interesting, and and it is true that is maybe one uh, big distinction. We were talking recently to. Um, uh, Priyanka and Aaron from Open Law, who are also doing the Museo DAO project. Um, and for those for those who are unfamiliar, didn't catch the episode. Um, one of their ideas was they acquired they acquired a bunch of crypto punks, right? Um, and one of the core ideas behind the punks is that you know they are these characters that somebody owns, but ultimately they're there to be experimented with. And so part Mm -hmm. of their idea was taking one of these punks, they got alien punk, which I think is one of the most rare punks. (laughs) (laughs) And they're trying to basically build, build a a kind of a franchise around this punk. Um, But they're also inviting other people to work with the punk too. Right. Which is kind of, which is a very, uh, quite a, quite a departure that feels like it's, that feels like it, it, it is very common. Um, in this kind of NFT crypto uh, uh, space, it is a bit of a break in that way. But as you said, over time, I'm not sure 
you know, when the Disney's and the NBA's get involved, well, the NBA's already involved, but, but when- But I agree. I feel like the kind of fandom approach is so um, inherent and understood with, within the kind of NFT community or maybe the crypto community largely. So it'll be really interesting to see how really centralized- um, corporations with a lot of, you know, with a lot of capital invested in IP, right? How they're going to deal with this kind of opening up of, um, yeah, of IP essentially. Yeah. What's going to be super interesting also is going to be like when synthetic media really can merge with fandoms and DAOs, um, what I mean, if if a brand is smart, if Disney is smart, what they do is like, we want Darth Vader that can speak fluent Korean, and uh-huh, which yeah. our audience, you know, in Korea, I don't know, the Star Wars fans in Korea, right? Like, and like, if they if they if they wanted to expand the franchise, they could have creators earn from that IP and reward them, right? But exactly. uh, mm-hmm. sometimes that that sort of dynamic requires a reevaluation of their existing power law. Uh, structures which which favor shareholders a lot more, right? So, like, if you look at fandoms, and, and this is why the DAO movement and the experiments here are so interesting because the rules are somewhat more transparently negotiated and we still have some level of um, agency in, in determining the rules of the DAO that we participate in or act in. The challenge is just, like... Um, once you can, once you can use synthetic media to create content uh, rapidly, um, this this is also going to open up the possibilities for uh, fandoms to you know copy paste a, a personality, a voice, a face, uh, and then create new uh, new IP right and new opportunities for that story for that lore to be memed more effectively into the. Uh, matrix of reality, right? So I think like there is a lot, a lot there that that can be done. It just requires a a level of thinking uh, that is similar to what maybe what Pre and Aaron were are planning on doing, like having some level of openness on the IP so that people can experiment, people can create new culture. Because the strange thing is that um, the the again going back to sort of the conditional hive thing, it's. It's, it's, it's our default state of being, actually. We find a lot of joy when we create culture together, when we create meaning together, when we create shared experiences together, when we, you know, it's much more fun talking on a podcast with uh, with people together, right? And uh, as opposed yeah. to me talking in the mirror every morning. So like, there is there is like a type of joy that comes from interaction and, and communication and listening that we that is inherent to us. And I think the same would apply to, to art forms and, and media as well. But I also think that, it it can also accumulate more capital. I mean, just to put kind of put it bluntly, and I think that's one mm-hmm. area where the kind of crypto space really sees that there can be value added by opening up the IP a little bit, and where the kind of maybe old world structure is so protective, um, and they're kind of so fearful, they don't they're kind of missing out on what can really be like an added uh, an added value. Yeah, and and also in this context, it's it's also refreshing as well to have a conversation. You know. We, half of this is we're talking about AI and, you know, at least in our universe, uh, one of the kind of specters of AI that's kind of lingered for a really long time is, you know, this idea of like emphasis on personalization. So for example, in, in music, this has been something that's existed forever, but, uh, you know, one, almost like an engineering hallmark is this idea of saying, well, could you create the perfect song just for you? Um, which is funny because uh, in line with this kind of approach toward IP and character creation and sharing is, you know, my line in a sense is the beautiful thing about, uh, you know, pop music or something like that is that in essence, it's kind of a commitment that somebody else is also listening. You know, that, that, one of the beauty, beautiful things about music in some ways is it is this kind of shelling point between people. It's this thing that is inherently shareable. It's a, it's a, it's a common experience. And actually mm-hmm. that is some of, that's one of the most attractive, that's when culture begins. That's one of the most attractive things about music to people. The idea of a personalized song that, that speaks just to you is, is in my mind, actually not, not anywhere near as interesting or as desirable as these kind of collective entities that everybody can contribute to, right? That, that, and figuring out some kind of an economy around that is like very, very thrilling because we, we haven't previously really had the tools, uh, the tools to do that. It's obviously happened somewhat with sample culture. It happened a bit with like a file sharing culture to, to some extent, but things are, mm. things are exponentially changing on that front. Yeah. And the exciting part here is that I think where we are for synthetic media uh, to the file sharing analogy is we're sort of in the Napster era. Yep. Right? So, uh-huh. so people can cut, copy, paste voices, faces, personalities. There is some, there are some rules and boundaries, you know, like um, you can use existing legal structures if somebody defames you or 
um, or creates, uh, 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 I mean, I think in California it's passed a law on deep fake porn and like there are genuine considerations there that need to be thought through. But the general overwhelming uh, larger use cases of technologies like this is going to be essentially that, that composability is going to create enormous amount of creativity and therefore enormous amount of value that can be captured in capital and capital that now the exciting thing is a capital that can be determined by the people as to what sort of currency they want to capture it in right? like is this their own uh, ecosystem that they've created um, that rewards people that has game-like mechanics that has uh, rules uh, similar to the way a city would have or a metaverse would have right versus why denominated directly into the US dollar right so like there's sort of like um, an opportunity here to really reshape capital at the same time because culture and capital are so intrinsically tied towards like power law dynamics today that there is no real alternative. But when you can start experimenting with some of these things, uh, the way like the 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 uh, experiments that Holly is doing on on and, and you guys are doing on 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 the DAO, I think that's so that's so unique and powerful because now you can actually remix and recreate and and I think extend the. The, the presence of Holly's voice around the world, right? And such a it's a it's such a distinct and and, and beautiful voice because of the laugh, because of the sound. There's a certain uh, individuality here that that actually can. It's so distinctly individual that uh, uh, that when a hive can play with that dynamic, you know, it's, it just creates new combinations that, that were not possible before. And so, like, that's tapping into both, like, the, the individual aspect of it, but also uh, what, a, what a potential fandom or DAO can do with that, right? Yeah, it's a really wild experiment. And, I, you know, I have no idea where it's going to go. And that's kind of what's yeah. so exciting about it is it, already it's my voice is appearing in places where it just never would have before. And I find that really strangely liberating. Um, you know, like I feel like I can do more or, you know, be more present in different spaces. And yeah, it, it just opens it up in a way that I didn't even imagine. I, I was honestly a little bit nervous about it at first, but like once it kind of came out, I, it's been more easy to kind of embrace. Yeah. Wait till the words start. I know when, when language is introduced, it's going to get more and yeah. more interesting. But one thing I thought we could maybe pivot toward a little bit is something that Juliet was talking about earlier, um, which is this kind of like idea of empathy and deep emotional connection with these kind of um, synthetic characters. Cause you know, I, people often bring up this, um, this study of the, how people um, are kind of cruel to digital assistants mm. and that can translate into the real world. And then kind of, you know, you find people being cruel to the fe- to female humans because they're used to being cruel to their female digital assistant. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of like the opposite of that, where you're giving the characters a kind of ability to create empathy in those that encounter them. Or to be able to create kind of a deeper emotional connection. I was wondering how you do that. Or is am I misunderstanding that? Is that not like a, a part of the project? You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com slash interdependence. This podcast is ad free and only possible through patron support. Thank you.